Hi, my name's Tori and I wish I knew more about blood products. Hi, my name's Letitia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when starting shift work. Hi, my name is Lydia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in a team and solve conflict. Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crow. I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things. Hello, my name is Liz Crow. I'm Jesse Spur. We've got a really special Five Things episode today because we're going to talk about sorry business. And we're welcoming Janet Layton, who's the Indigenous Hospital Liaison Officer here at the hospital. She only works after hours at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. She's a very special guest. Welcome, Janet. Hi. (laughs) Hello, Janet. With all of our guests, we like to get a little bit of the origin story. So sort of your your life background and how you've ended up working here in this job today. Hmm. Okay. Uh, Well, I'm an elder of Goombenga Nation, specifically the western side of Goombenga Nation, which is the Coffs Harbour region. Uh, I was born in Sydney. Um, My father was raised as a traditional Aboriginal man and my mother's Greek Turkish. So I've grown up with the customs of both sides of my family as well as the languages. Uh, I've also, over my years, spent a lot of time in traditional Aboriginal communities and worked extensively in the Northern Territory and not not in around Alice Springs, Central Australia, as well as um, Northern New South Wales, Canberra, there and Queensland. So wow. I've known Queensland from the very early days when I used to travel around the country as the only field officer for the um, opening year of the Federal Department of Aboriginal Affairs. I'm a uh, master's degree in social work and I've had a previous uh, degree in Bachelor of Arts when I was young. And uh, in those days, um, I'm proud to say there was no special entry for that. So I had to get in there on my own merits. And um, my daughter's just graduated from veterinary science with the same kind of um, background. Wow. So that's something we're both really proud of. Um, I've got a very long career working in the federal public service at a senior executive level, and that was in the Federal Department of Health. Uh, Likewise, I've come to Queensland after some years in Coffs Harbour, worked in an executive level job and then dropped out of that and went into community work. Um, And then after some years, I've come to the hospital. Initially, I started up the after hours Indigenous hospital liaison service, which was three people, myself and two staff here in this hospital. We used to also service Prince Charles Hospital. And then over time, we got some more positions and we then moved, after about five years, we started servicing the other hospitals by having staff placed in them. And at a later point, um, the each hospital took governance for each staff member or for different operational areas of the Aboriginal Liaison Service. And so I think that's worked very well. And I continue to be in the job that I'm in because I enjoy what I do, you know. I have fun. I like working with the patients and I also get on pretty well around most of this hospital. Yeah, beautiful. So, Janet, today we're going to talk about sorry business and I'm, you know, going to start this off by preface it, I guess, by saying that we're really going to – this is about Aboriginal sorry business. 
We're not talking about First Nations. We're talking about Aboriginal Surrey business, which is quite different from Torres Strait Islander sad news. Mm. Um, And so we're just going to make that differentiation so that our listeners understand that today we're talking about Aboriginal Surrey business. I want to preface uh, what I have to say by acknowledging the traditional custodians of this area, which is the Turrbal and Yagara people. Uh, Then I'll go on to say that um, what I'm talking to you about is my experience and my knowledge from a fairly extensive background in urban as well as traditional Aboriginal communities. But um, other people may have different points of view and that's the whole point about it is that, sorry, business, we don't have uniformity. There is... uh, different views about how sorry business ought to be handled depending on where you come from. Perfect. That's such a beautiful lead straight into our number one point is that not all sorry business is the same. And you've already started to allude to that. And so I guess, you know, you're saying like in any culture, you, you don't, or any religion, you can't say this is what these people do because we're all different, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But it's also a factor that you know, where things started in traditional practice over time has changed because of the influences of uh, the majority culture and when people lost knowledge of uh, traditional ways of doing things. Yeah, okay. But there are still many remnants there. So can you just explain, most people I think won't understand this, but what is sorry business? Okay, sorry business is uh, a period in preparing for the death of a person uh, in our culture, that is, uh, death is not the end. Um, we believe that when you die, your spirit goes back to your dreaming, which is the same as your totem. Urban people will have uh, maybe less knowledge of that, but there are still elements of traditional practice in what they do. Um, usually it's when a person has actually died. So um, people have a grieving process that can be quite long, meaning the formalities but naturally, like any people, grieving can go on for years and years. But in the old ways, um, when someone was dying uh, tr- amongst traditional people, they would prepare for impending death with uh, singing the, the dreaming stories and going to country where that person specifically relates to. Amongst urban people, as far as I know, that does not happen. But people will have their own ways of doing things. So when I encounter people in the hospital who are actually dying, um, they tend to look to be with their families. They want to die with their families around them. But I've also found that patients take a lot of comfort in being able to read about the um, traditions of our culture. So some of the older members uh, have been very happy to read books about Aboriginal tales and legends because they're like Aesop's fables. They have lessons. But it also gives you a reminder of your culture and what it means. And so I've had feedback from elders uh, my age and, and beyond who've been felt they had a lot of peace out of reading those um, stories. And because sorry business, I guess, is so individual based on where people grew up, what their experiences with culture have been, would you say like if I'm a healthcare professional listening to this podcast that one of the most important things to take away is that if you're working with someone who identifies as being Aboriginal, then we should be asking them, what does sorry business mean for you and how can we help you? I wouldn't be as direct as that. Okay. All right. I think just, uh, look, there are a lot of people who have no knowledge of the old practices. I think it's a matter of just saying, what can we do for you? Yeah, perfect. All right. Just leave it at that. But most people will want 
a large room mm. and lots of family members coming to visit because everybody's coming to do their farewells. Yeah, perfect. I think this is going to lead us beautifully into your second point in around like how do we understand some of the traditional and rituals that may come with sorry business? Like what's what sort of things do that, does that involve? Well, what that involves is um, if the person has already passed, the family or designated people within the family will want to come and wash the body. Um, I know some families where the person is washed prior to death and they take a lot of comfort in that. There's usually uh, smoking or you can use a scented oil. Uh, One of my friends was telling me recently that when her mother was dying, uh, they washed her with eucalyptus oil because that's, and she's a Yagara person, so that's what they use for this country. Mm. But other other families may do something different. I haven't seen everybody do it. Yeah. But if I'm talking to families, I'll offer them something if, they, if they'd like it. Yeah. All right. And uh, so once the body is washed and they'll redress the body, well, actually they're not allowed to have clothing on the body but according to the hospital policy but the person is covered and mm. then they're later taken uh, down to the morgue. But for the practices in this hospital, the body is left uh, with family for many hours so that the, everybody in the family can come and make their farewell. So the emergency department, one time we had a lady a couple of years ago who passed away and um, I, the, the emergency team uh, asked me about what to do and then we waited until three o'clock in the afternoon for the last family member to come hmm. because they had to come such a long way. Yeah. And then after that, there were no more people. I, I checked it with the family. So uh, it's important to note in this that it's the staff should be calling an IHLO when these situations are coming up and let us know, let us be there and handle it so to make sure everything's done in a sensitive and appropriate way. Um the other thing is that traditionally if you're out bush, you'd, you'd have a smoking ceremony and many families do smoking over the gravesite. Yeah. And the purpose of the smoking is to clear uh, clear spirits, all right, create clean energy. And then that way the uh, spirit of the person in, you know, it's believed that the spirit of the person will stay around the body for a number of days and then after that it will go. But sometimes they, they don't go. So the cleansing ceremony is about f- making sure that the spirit is free to move on. Yeah. Right. In in past years when I was young, I saw situations in some of the uh, communities where in the old days you used to burn with burn the person's clothes and burn their house and all the stuff, that kind of thing. But in later years, they didn't burn the houses anymore. They simply uh, moved the family out, exchanged the house with another family and painted it before anybody else went in. And that the purpose of that is to make the house unrecognisable to the spirit if it's right. still, still around. Yeah, so interesting. Mm. Um, you hear a lot about not using a person's name after they have died. What's yeah. the significance of that? That's the same thing as clearing the spirit, that whatever you use that person's name, their spirit, you're holding on to part of their spirit. So it's again about giving, creating freedom to go, all right? So in Central Australia, the term for a person who's passed away is kumanjai, mm-hmm. followed by their name. Yeah. All right, their surname, not their Christian name. Yeah, not their first name. And so urban families don't tend to do that. Some people will avoid mentioning the name. They'll say Mr. or Mrs. Mm. Um, And people who um, may not know anything about those things will still use the name. Yeah. All right. 
In a, in a healthcare setting, after an Aboriginal person has died, again, should they just go back to the family and say, is it okay to use the person's name or how would you like to refer to the person now? If you're talking, if a member of staff wants to talk to the family and they're referring to the person who's passed, it's it's uh, respectful if you say Mr. or Mrs. Yeah, okay. All right, don't use their Christian name. I'm I'm noticing that you're using the word past. Is the word death okay to use or? Yeah. It is. Yeah. Okay, just wanted yeah. to check. Well, yes, Some depends. Some people would prefer that you say gone mm. or they've left. Yeah. Uh, words that are less direct than yeah. death because they know she's, they know the person's dead. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, um, I mean, even after a, traditionally once a person's died, I mean, they'll stay out bush if you're out bush. They'll stay out bush with the body for a number of days afterwards still doing the ceremonies that are related to the passing. Mm. All right. And in the old days there were different tribes had different practices about the way they bury a person or in the top end, uh, some of them don't do that. They'll put the body out on platforms in the bush mm. and go back at a much later time when the flesh is gone and there's just the bones there and crush them. Mm. All so right? interesting. Yeah. And then for very tribal people, uh, I heard a story once from someone who was up in the Cape and an old lady had passed away and they put her body out on the on the flats at low tide mm. And she she was a crocodile totem or alligator totem. And when they went back later, uh, there were two alligators laying on each side of her body, so oh. one pointing in one direction, another pointing in the other direction. And when my own father died, um, we saw willy wagtails all over the place because that was my father's totem. Yeah. So there was a very large – my mother knew as soon as she saw the birds that he'd gone. Yeah. You know. And when I, when my father passed, I actually had a dream. And it didn't include the birds, but it was a dream involving my father and my brother with white horses galloping through uh, a bush area. So that's a bit different. But Mm. there was a particular message in that which I knew straight away. Mm. But, yeah. It's very spiritual, isn't it? Very. Yeah, yeah, it is. Well, that comes back to our spiritual traditions around the fact that when a person, when a child is created, Mm. in the old days they didn't know about uh, sexual relationships, um, it was about the fact that, you know, you're calling uh, a spirit energy in at the time of birth. So when a child was born, the clever one, which would be a woman at the time of birth, uh, they would identify the totem of that child. Hmm. All right. But in later years, some in some families, they, uh, they pass on the totem. They regard themselves as belonging to the same totem as the, as previous members of the family. Yeah. But in the old culture, from my knowledge, uh, the totem can be different within the same family group. Mm. So it's such a beautiful, so, rich For instance, culture. my my grandmother's totem is the bandicoot, mm. but my father and his grandfather were Willie Wagtail. And in the old customs, there's a kinship and or what they call a moiety system, what anthropologists call a moiety system, and that has designated uh, roles and responsibilities as well as status. So in the old culture, when someone's dying or has died, there's a certain status about who is responsible for directing what happens in the after process. But with most families I've seen come in here, um, most people, say within an urban area, they'll relate to whoever the, the person's partner was, as well as the eldest member of that family, yeah. whether, it's, whether it's man or woman. 
guiding the body back to dream time. So when they, traditionally speaking, they're, they're doing the chance of that person's individual totem and that's to guide them back. It's, there's a story in that dreaming that takes that person back to the dreaming they belong to. Mm. All right. That means that a person, when you belong to that totem, you're not allowed to eat it. You're not allowed to harm it in any way. All right. And then if you if your spirit decides to come back, you can come back either as a human or as the totem. Mm. And let me just say, totems are not always animals and birds. It can be plants. Oh. Which is why when you see some of the uh, the traditional art coming from uh, Central Australia and the north. Um, they'll talk about like the dreaming story or the painting can be about a particular plant. Yeah. All right. So they're all stories that have lessons attached to them. So the person's body goes back to the dream time and the the smoking ceremony or the use of particular oils that clear spirit energy, that's about clearing negative energy mm. in particular mm. away. But I've had many Aboriginal people tell me when they're leading up to dying that they've seen somebody that was dear to them. So we did have a lady that passed away here last year and I knew her for 20 years. Yeah. But before I came to the hospital and she and I, she she believed in the old ways like I do. So we used to have some lengthy conversations about spirituality and the old practices. And she said to me, one day we were sitting in her room and she's um, uh, she had a lot of pain. So we would do a meditation and she um, said to me, we were both sitting there together and I felt the presence of her family members and she told me that she was seeing her father standing at the end of the bed. So she was very close to her dad and so uh, the message he gave her that was that, you know, her time was coming. Yeah. And so, you know, he would be there for her when the time came. What a beautiful comfort for that person. Oh, lots of non-Indigenous people have that, that experience well. too. Yes, they do. Yeah, they yeah. do. Yeah. All right. right. So, um, and when it comes to oh, music, sometimes people like to have the music as well. Uh, I haven't heard urban people playing didgeridoo music, but didgeridoo is not, it's Indigenous to the top end. Mm. So really it doesn't belong to people away from that area and, they, and, you know, you really have to get permission from them to even use it. Really? Mm. Yeah. And so what what sort of music, other music might well, we hear? Well, um, uh, in, what I've seen in Brisbane, people will play particular songs that the person liked or that family likes. Mm-hmm. So I went to a very beautiful ceremony earlier this year for a lady who was very well known around Brisbane and uh, there were over 200 people in the room. So they had a public venue for it and they played all of her music. And what a lot of families do is also have mm-hmm. a um, collage of photographs of the person with family members uh, or friends, people that were special. Yeah. Mm. So that's very nice too, mm. you know. Yeah. But in the old culture, you wouldn't do that. In traditional communities, you wouldn't have any photographs around of that person, their clothing, etc. And that's because of a concern that you want to allow the spirit to go back. And if you're speaking of them or you have their possessions, then maybe the spirit will... It's a hold. Yeah. yeah. It's a hold. Yeah. And when it comes to the oils, like I said, my friend's family used eucalyptus oil. Mm. Um, in Central Australia, they use a wood called mulga. Yep. And that has a very pleasant smell. It's not as sharp as eucalyptus, mm. but they'll smoke the entire area and the, and the home. Um, and the body. 
Yeah. Okay. And for myself, when I've offered people something here in the hospital, uh, the oils that I use are wood oils like cedar and uh, cypress and um, clary sage. Mm. And I, I was telling you at the Queensland Children's Hospital that the quiet suite, you can actually um, do the smoking ceremony. They built it that way. But most hospitals, that's not going to happen, mm. um, which you know, maybe distressing, but you're saying that for people who wanted to do the smoking ceremony, they may do it over the body, maybe during the grave or yeah. at another time. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know whether we could use um, oil burners in mm. the hospital or not, but it would, would be nice to have something there. Yeah. But I'm, I'm not sure whether that'll set the fire or alarms off, off yeah. or not, you know. Unfortunately. I, I, it's a subject for more discussion, really. Mm. Yeah, we have got an Aboriginal team. And they supply uh, an Aboriginal and a Torres Strait Islander blanket for the, for the body and that's given to the family to use when they wish. But usually they drape it over the body once it's in the morgue and then the family go down there and visit, yeah. you know, with the body like that. Mm. Yeah. I really want, wanted to pick up on the first thing that you said, which was really just about just ask, is there anything that we can do mm. that is going to make this better or help. Mm. Um, I think I was in my first year of working in intensive care in southern um, Queensland near northern New South Wales and we asked that question um, of an Aboriginal family that one of their loved ones was passing away and one of the simple things was just they we had the ability to open a door so it was open to outside and they just asked that um, for, for the same reasons that have become really obvious listening to you in terms of uh, the ability for the spirit to leave mm. and they said afterwards that that meant so much to them being able to actually see outside and see that there was a clear exit to some pretty beautiful space mm. outside the ICU there. It's one of the nicest mm. physical environments I've worked in in an ICU. It would be really nice if also around the hospital we had pictures up on the walls of natural scenes yeah. or plants like the physiotherapy department always stands out in my mind because they have all these you know, photographs of flowers and or natural landscapes. And I think a lot of that around the hospital, people, I think, relax when they see them. Yeah. You know? So e even the individual rooms, it would be nice if there was a lot of those around. Yeah. All right. So point number three is around how to talk to families. Give us some really practical tips of how we could do this so much better. Okay. Well, as you know, most, most patients will have identified a next of kin that person represents who would be the spokesperson, but they're not necessarily a decision maker. Yep. So when people come into the hospital, you'll find out who the partner of the patient is. And I guess having a group meeting with the family is a good idea too, like when the doctors talk to the family anyway, identify spokesperson, partner, because I've also encountered situations where a patient has had a partner but they've only been with them for six months. Yeah, They're listed as the next of kin. So the patient's family, uh, whether it's parents, one of the parents, they won't be happy with that, <clears throat> all right? So if the patient is unable to make that decision, then you've got to revert to the family. Yeah. And if the next of, if that partner is understands, you know, like the manners of it, they would volunteer to do that anyway. Yeah. All right? So uh, it's when you see the interactions of the family, the closest family members will check with them because it can vary so much. That's where the IHLO comes in, I think, because we had a situation here um, last year with a young man who came in 
and he was with his partner that he'd been with for quite some years. She was nominated as his next of kin. And then the patient's mother decided to come down here and then there were all kinds of difficulties in the ICU over the situation because the mother was demanding to be next of kin. So anyway, when the patient became conscious, he reinforced his decision that his partner was his next of kin and the decision maker. And in fact, he didn't want his mother there at all. Yeah. So having to navigate those situations, that's you must have the IHLO present yeah. or involved because they can they can find out those things and then communicate them to the staff. And the other thing is that whenever whenever there looks like there might be some potential disagreement, staff need to contact the IHL service straight away because I've been caught in situations where uh, I haven't been asked to go until there's a problem. Yeah. And sometimes it's a very big problem and it puts me at risk culturally as well as uh, in other ways, hmm. you know. Okay. Yeah. And that's only because sometimes you have very difficult individuals within a family group who may be overriding the spokesperson or the elder for the family. Mm. Okay. So one of the <laughs> points, you know, when we were talking earlier is that there's a real classification and responsibility of roles in Aboriginal families that white people just simply may not understand. Mm. Can you briefly tell us, like, what does that mean? What do you mean by classification and responsibility? You've talked to, you know, having a next of kin is different to a decision maker. Mm. Um, what other sort of roles or classifications do you think we need to understand? Well, look, we're not in a traditional community area. We're in an area where people are highly urbanised. So uh, <clears throat> I think they'll let you know. You can always find out from the home community they come from if there are any special things they need need to tell us. Yeah. But as I say, the IHLO is the one who can identify the appropriate people. And when difficult situations have to be made and the patient is not capable of doing that, then the family will meet and have that discussion for themselves. So one of the big difficulties we have is that often um, the wait time for a doctor to come and talk to the family can be really, really long. And some families are, are willing to be patient and then others are not. Mm. All right. And there can be, it can take days of discussion uh, with doctors to, they, because the, fam the family really want to know to the nth level, yeah, exactly have all of their questions answered so that they understand it. And one of the things that I've seen people be very sensitive to is organ donation. It, it is very difficult. We had a situation here some years ago where a patient had identified himself as a member of the organ donor. Uh, program and the family got together. It took days of debate uh, for to get get to the position where they supported his decision and then his youngest daughter opposed it and right. the whole family caved in because of that one person. You're alluding to the fact though that really, you know, we need to be prepared in the hospital situation that it could be dozens of people who need to be around the bedside, involved, in part of those, you know, decision makings or family meetings, isn't it? So really, if we're going to have a big discussion, we probably need to check in who needs to be here. Yeah. Well, look, the family will all turn up and they'll accommodate each other. People will line up and wait in the ICU. People know that you can't have more than two people in there at a time uh, and they'll accommodate that. Mm. We did have the death of a very, very popular and well-known young man um, over a year ago. And they all took turns to come in. He was 
already brain dead, mm. but they all took their turns and uh, and then at the end when they took him off the life support machines, the whole family were in there. Yeah. With that. Well, the thing is that in with many Aboriginal family, it's not the person who's talking the most or the most loudly. The most influential members of the family are often the ones who are not uh, kind of upfront. Yeah. So it, it might be hard for us to identify that person yeah. if we don't understand the dynamics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, so number four is that there's a difference between someone's home or their address and country. Can you please tell us about that? Well, country relates to your place of origin, where your ancestors come from, and in traditional Aboriginal law, um, all individuals have a right to claim to be belong to that, all right? And if you're looking at what uh, is called native title or or land custodianship, uh, there is a an order. In, there's a seniority on it uh, within traditional Aboriginal culture, but a lot of more um, these days in more urban types of areas, less traditional Aboriginal communities. It's it's going to be an elder more often than not. But in traditional Aboriginal communities, you can have a young person who's the senior custodian because of their their status within the ceremonial life. Right. All right. So you really have to be involved in that. But that people don't need to know that here, all right, but just be sensitive to the fact that um, Aboriginal people not all being the same, they'll have different practices, yeah. right? But country is is your, where your bones should be mm. sort of thing, you know, and a lot of Aboriginal people want to go back and die in country. Home is where you live and a lot of people have lived in the same place for a long, long time yeah. or in the vicinity and because of the past um, uh, management by early settlers and the colonial government, a lot of Aboriginal people were removed from their pla- their country and taken elsewhere. So uh, a lot of people won't know those kind of things. Yeah. All right? Very but home, home is still where you relate to. Mm. So country is very important and when someone's dying, um, you know, do everything you can to support the family. Well, there's a limit on what, what the staff can do. But, you know, obviously now that Queensland Health's decided to pay for a body to be taken back home, that's a great thing because in the past the families have had to raise that money themselves and it's not easy. No, and very expensive. And very expensive, yeah. 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 You've alluded to your fifth point throughout this whole podcast and that is why it is just so essential that we involve the Indigenous Health Liaison Service really early in this piece. There are cultural things that need to be taken into consideration from the minute, you know, someone who identifies as being Aboriginal comes through the door. So can you tell us, you know, what why that's so important? Well, it makes people feel safe in the hospital. Yeah. All right. A lot of Aboriginal people still don't like coming into hospitals because it's where people die. Yeah. Um, they also feel unsafe because they don't trust the system or trust doctors. It all relates to the history of contact between an Aboriginal family and people who are doctors or nurses or even social workers. Yeah. Okay. So stories get passed down through families and it depends on what the nature of that might be. But at the same time, we've got a lot of families who compliment the staff and how, how great they've been in supporting them and the care that's been given to to the patient. So different horses for courses, different yeah. people. Um, I often find that 
people who are difficult more often than not are people who are not necessarily uh, in alignment with the other the rest of the family. Yeah. And certainly I guess what you're saying is is that the earlier you're involved, you know, hopefully the smoother, more successful that Aboriginal person's impatience day is. Well, it makes it easier for everybody yeah. because then the family know that uh, that there's not going to be anything that will happen to upset them apart from a doctor telling them that their, their loved one's passed or whatever the situation may be. Uh, and it also avoids staff doing something that might be offensive. Yeah. And likewise for our people not to uh, become upset and cranky with a staff member if they do something they don't like. Hmm. So all the way around, you're just trying to be show consideration to everybody. But at times, some people have a particular personality style where that's not the way they work. They want to be the dominant one, hmm. and that needs to be managed by an IHLO. Is it all right to contact an IHLO to come and support a family in an outpatient situation? Yes. Yeah. Our service is there to support all patients no matter what their situation in the hospital is. And the trouble is we don't have a big enough team to do everything because we also transport patients who are returning home after discharge and that by home I mean people in rural uh, rural areas outside of the greater Brisbane area. Mm. Mm. Very, very but essential role for us. Yeah, and uh, I don't think a lot of people uh, often appreciate that. What a lot of people don't realise is that our service is not only a patient support service but an advocacy, yeah, an advocacy role um, for our patients and that can cover a wide range of things. You're, certainly the IHLOs have this huge broad range of skills right across all parts of hospital work, don't you? Well, it's more experiences than skills because yeah. you know, even the IHLO team has skills that they um, need to develop. Mm. Mm. Perfect. All right. So now, Janet, I have the very tricky job of trying to summarise everything that you have told us today. Um, and I'm, I'm really going to struggle to do this because so much of this has been such beautifully kind of spiritual information. So let's just see how I go. So number one, not all sorry business is the same. So we need to check in with people. We need to use our IHLOs to know that people will have different um, experiences or wishes for this for their sorry business based on where they've grown up and who their culture, their cultural understanding, and you know where the, what sort of community they've grown up in. Number two is understanding the traditions and rituals within sorry business um, is important and it's really varied. And again, we need to go back to our IHLOs for guidance um, and that sometimes you were saying you might have literature or information that you can share with a family that they may not have had previously, but that that covers a whole range of things. You talked about a number of families may want to wash the body either before or after they've passed, um, that there may be smoking ceremonies that happen outside of the hospital. If people feel strongly about that, they may bring in oils Um, that they may want to use. For some people, music will be important. But it's all about um, helping a a body transition back and what's important for that particular family. Can I I just thought of another topic too, that uh, one thing that's important to know is that many Aboriginal families on the eastern side of Australia will be Christians. Yeah. But there are going to be people who are not Christians because traditional Aboriginal spirituality is not the same thing. Yeah. 
and then you've got people who do a blend, like some older members of the community, they think in a blend of Christianity and what they may know about old culture. So they may want to pre-store a, a spiritual person belonging to that faith as well. Well, in Brisbane, um, more often than not, uh, there's a group here in Brisbane called Murray Ministry, oh. and we can call them because they are Aboriginal people who are lay ministers, <clears throat> but they um, they tend to be very popular amongst people who are within the Brisbane community. Yeah, I didn't know that, so mm. thank you. Okay, so talking to the family, again, involved the IHLOs really early, but to bear in mind that when we're having family meetings, we probably need to plan a room that can accommodate large groups of people. Mm. And when we're talking, we need to understand that there's a difference between next of kin and the decision makers. And they often will need help from the IHLOs and families to understand that those differences. And one of the things I really love that you said about that is sometimes the noisiest or loudest person may not not be either the next of kin or the decision maker. And so we have to wait until, you know, we get word from those two cr- critical key people. Yeah, and decision maker is more about, there's also influential Mm. influential individuals and a lot of times families will want to make a group decision so that will take a lot longer to resolve any concerns. Yeah, so give us, everyone needs some time and space. Number four is that there's a difference between home and country. So often people's home might be their address but it may not be their country, their place of origin. Um, I think you said the place where their bones may need to be laid. So we need to understand that they could be two different things and, again, to be guided by your IHLOs and the families around whether or not that's important to them and how we can assist. Mm -hmm. And number five, we've talked about this all the way through, is this huge importance. We've got this fabulous rich resource in every hospital hopefully uh, across the country of our Indigenous Health Liaison Officers, please use these people, um, reach out early and that we should all really be asking not just for your assistance around individual families and patients but also around helping teach us around the importance of culture and how we can just do this work so much better. Mm. Yes, that sounds right. Janet, what a beautiful experience you've given us and the listeners today. Thank you so very much for joining us on Five Things Nursing. Oh, well, I'm I'm grateful. I'm sure other people are grateful too to the fact that we have an open mind and willing to um, accept those practices in what you do as a normal business. Beautiful. Thank you. The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at 5thingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at Liz Crow 2 and for me it's inject underscore orange 
We would absolutely love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or feedback. Thanks for listening to Five Things 